Amen. You know, at home I have this, um, I, I guess it's a treasure chest, kind of a box. Uh, I got it as a kid. It really looks like a treasure chest, and I've kept it. And it's filled with little trinkets and toys and pictures and random, like, photos and letters. And it's just random. My wife makes fun of me for it because, like, it's the hoarder in me. She's like, what are you doing? This is like, I'm like, it just meant so much to me as, like, a young child. And she's like, you were 15. Um, but, no, it meant to me as a, a lot to me as a kid. And just I've kept it over the years. And the other day I was just digging through this and looking at old photos, which are, like, terrible when you're doing that. And I actually found this little letter from Kimber um, and I, I totally forgot about this letter. It was like a prayer she wrote. I think that the only way it makes sense to me, the, the way she wrote it, I think is a prayer she wrote right before we moved here from California, just praying for God's um, just faith to move in us, uh, that we wouldn't be afraid or discouraged as we move or like leave. And she's just, the way she's writing, it was just like, God, give my, just give my husband uh, faith in this season. And it was like such a beautiful prayer. I totally forgot about it. And it's just fun to read through it. Um, I actually found this one, too. She wrote me a love letter. This, this love letter is 15 years old. She wrote this in 2005, and this is real. You can see my name, Josiah Graves. I heard that in high school, you know. Don't, don't zoom in, actually. I don't want you guys to. Um, <laughs> but she wrote this 15 years ago, and I read it. I'm going to read it. No, I'm not going to read it. Um, but, but I was reading it the other day, and it was so cool because she literally, and it, you know, we we're high school sweethearts. It's that kind of like, hey, when we get married, we're going to have kids. It's like one of those letters. And it's bizarre. She's like, I look forward to the day we have our first kid. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have that date now. And she was just writing about her family. And I wonder what God's going to do in 10 years, 20 years. And it's bizarre. We've been married now over 12 years. And just reading this letter before we were married 15 years ago, to knowing how God, how faithful God's been, to knowing the person who wrote this and how it meant to her, how, how much it means to her now, there's something about reading a letter like this, when you know it's from someone you love, when you know it's from someone you care about, when you know it's from someone who has like this expectation of, of great things, of change, of future, of life. And here's why I'm saying that. I read this letter right here. I read this much differently than I read my phone when I get alerts and the news that's happening. When I get an alert right now that's saying, update, COVID-19, or when I get some news alert on whatever it might be, the stock market, mutual funds, you're like reading through it, that does not mean as much as this letter means to me. That has actually very little significance. When I read those things, I go, okay, who wrote this? What's their agenda? What kind of bent? What do they want me to believe? You know, we kind of read it with skepticism. But when I read this letter from my wife, who was then, uh, you know, our, my, a teenager, girlfriend, high school sweetheart, when I read that letter, there's a different mindset and expectation and excitement around that. And why I'm sharing that is I think you and I can either read the Bible in a couple of different ways. I think we can open this up and kind of read it like our morning devotion, almost like the stock market, like what's happening, what's going on in the world. We'll read it for like news and for information, and we just want information. And yet little, I feel like, do we always realize that behind this book, behind many of these letters that we've turned into books, is a God who wants deep intimacy with us. And there's a God who has like this excitement about us knowing him in um, him knowing us. And I, I'm sharing this because I want to read this book differently. This book is living. This book is powerful. This book has changed my life. This book has changed many people's lives. I believe and trust it's changed your life. But it's easy over time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, to read this book, and I've heard this before, or I've, I know this story. And you don't read it with that same expectation and anticipation. And here's what I'm honestly like, praying for in preparing for this message, let me just sh share this. Um, we are coming up to Easter Sunday, 
And I genuinely believe that we need to believe there's power in this book again. Like, I know we do believe that, like in theory, but I don't know if I always approach this book with that excitement and anticipation that as this word is preached and proclaimed, people will be saved. I don't know if I always read this, I go, you know, Christians still can change. There's still growth that God wants to do and development God wants to do. And I actually wholeheartedly believe that God wants to do something in this way for us. So I'm very excited to see what the Lord's going to do. So I want to just walk through this text. We're really just going to walk through verse 12 and 13. So here's the three main thoughts, the three main points. We're going to look at the word defined, the word defined, the word discerns, and the word demands. The word defined, the word discerns, and the word uh, demands. It demands something. So uh, let's look at the first one, the word defined, the word defined. Let's read just the first part of verse 12 again. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Let's just look at the definition of that. What is the word of God? It's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, It's interesting to me that the Bible never calls itself the Bible, right? Like we give it that name. It's a collection of writings that we put together to form one book, but it's many books. Um, The Bible actually gives itself different names or titles. Here are those names and titles. We'll just like put them up there so you can see this. The Bible calls itself the book of the law, gospel, like good news, holy scriptures, law of the Lord, living words, word of Christ, scriptures, the scroll, the sword of the spirit, truth, word of God, word of life, words of the Lord, and here, the word of God. These are just some of the titles for the Bible. So this is the word of God. Now, in this verse, Hebrews 4 verse 12, if you would circle the word word, that is the word you might hear many times. It's the word logos. I'll get back to that in a second. So it says the word of God, the word of God is living and powerful. Now, when we talk about the word of God, The word of God has God's revelation, which is God speaking to us, speaking to the prophets, speaking to us. There's revelation from God that comes through just the verbal word of God, and then men put it to paper. And there's also the idea of the incarnate word of God, that God's revelation was not just words from the sky in a sense, but God's revelation actually took on flesh. That the revelation of God to man, the word became flesh. Now here's what I want to do. Um, We cannot divorce the word of God from Jesus. And let me explain this. Um, This book, as we just looked at, is called the word of God. Jesus is called the word of God. In Revelation 19.15, listen to this verse, or Revelation 19.13, it says, Jesus was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. Jesus, the the way it describes him, this robe in blood, and it says his name is called the word of God. Jesus is called the word of God. It's funny to me when people say, I love love, uh, Jesus, I don't love theology. Like, I love Jesus, but I don't know if I love the idea of studying the Bible. And the Bible's basically saying it's it's inseparate. The word of God is living and powerful. Jesus' name is the word of God. You know, in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That is that same word, that word, word, is the same word, logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And if you remember in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, and the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus and the word are inseparable. And this is actually really cool, really important. It's funny. I think John must have known this. Um, philosophers in their day, Greek philosophers even before then, would speak of something called the logos, and the idea of this logos was, what is this philosophy or truth to live life by? They, they basically describe how everyone lives by a logos. Everyone li- lives by a philosophy. Everyone lives by this worldview, right? We would call it like a worldview. 
And they're basically saying, what is the true logos? What is the logos of all logos? What, what is that truth of life that will bring meaning and value to everyone, to, to all people? And there's kind of like debate about the logos. And I think that's very interesting because John takes that word, a word this Greco-Roman culture would understand, and says, you want to know about the logos? The logos became flesh and dwelt among us. See, it's not just some philosophy, some idea. It's actually tangible flesh and blood. That Jesus is the word of God, but made flesh. Now, I'm not trying to say Jesus is the Bible and the Bible is Jesus. I'm not trying to say that. I'm not trying to say we worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. I'm not saying that. But I am saying there's something about Jesus and the Word and the nature of Jesus and the nature of the Word, meaning the Word is called a lamp. Jesus is called the light of the world. The, the Word is a light to our feet. The Word endures forever. Jesus endures forever. There's just something about the Word of God and Jesus who is the Word of God. And there's, some, there's, there's this really unique correlation and there's power behind that. And here's what he's saying. The word of God, like the breath of God, the words of God, and the incarnate person of God is living. This word is living, and it's powerful. And I want us to get this. Psalm 138 verse 2 says this. God, it says, you, God, have exalted above all things your name and your word. Listen to that. The two things he exalts above everything else is God's name and his word. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's power in the name of Jesus. There is no name given among men by which he must be saved other than the name of Jesus. So there's power in the name of Jesus. He also says, and your word, your word, you've exalted above everything. See, God's word, God takes his word incredibly serious. So here's why I'm saying this. When people go, but I have a hard time with the Bible. Um, how did we get the Bible? When was it formed? How was it formed? Can we trust it? Can we trust the reliability of it? And this is a great question worth exploring. We did a message on this a couple weeks back, I think in like December, if you want to go back and listen to that. There's a really helpful book um, called Why Believe the Bible by John MacArthur. I want to recommend that. But let me just make this point really quick to everyone. Um, when someone says, I love Jesus, but I don't love the Bible, or I love to trust Jesus, but I don't trust the Bible, here's the thing. You sit, we can say that. People are like, I really respect Jesus, but I don't respect the Bible. But here's the thing. Jesus respected the Bible. Jesus trusted the Bible. Jesus is constantly quoting the Bible. Jesus affirms the, the reality of Adam and Eve. He talks about Noah and the events of Noah as being real events. He speaks of Daniel as a real person and real events being thrown into lines end. He speaks of Jonah as a real person. Jesus was a rabbi, meaning he's a teacher, a teacher of what? The Torah, the law, the, law, the first five books. Jesus constantly quoted the Psalms, Deuteronomy. He constantly quoted scripture. Here's my point. If Jesus can trust scripture, I believe we can. If Jesus can say, hey, this is true and these events are true, and you say, I trust Jesus, and I think he's, he changed the world, and he has some good teachings. I, I, you know, I, like, I respect him, but I don't respect the Bible. Well, the problem is you don't respect Jesus then, because he really respected the Bible. See, there's power in the word of God. So let me just say this. The, the way it's defined is it is living. Now, when we say there's power in the word, and here's what we're saying. Um, there's this phrase you might maybe have heard. It's called sola scriptura. There's something in the 1500s, when the Reformation took place, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis against like the Catholic Church and said, hey, we're doing things that the Bible doesn't affirm. They, the Reformers got together and they talked about something called sola scriptura, and the idea is scripture alone, meaning scripture is the highest authority. When we say sola scriptura, there's like three ideas. There's supremacy, sufficiency, and clarity, meaning uh, the supreme doctrine, the supreme thing that rules our life is scripture. You want to know what rules our life? It's scripture. Do, is there other authorities? Absolutely. God, actually, the scriptures tell us God has given us authorities. That's Romans 13, the government. That's church. That's leadership. There's actually other authorities, but the supreme authority always has and will be scripture. Then there's the sufficiency of scripture, meaning everything that we need for life and godliness is here. Everything we need to know Jesus is here. 
And the, the idea, too, is this, there's clarity to this. Now, you might read the Bible and say, Josiah, it doesn't feel very clear. Here's the point. Um, a young child who can read could read John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. A child could read that and say, I believe in him. And guess what? That child would not perish and have eternal life. The point being, um, yes, there's some text we need to understand the context and understand the writing style and, and, and the genre. All of that is very important. But there's also th- there's this simple element of anyone could pick this up and read this and know how to be saved. And so the scripture alone, the sola scriptura, the idea that it's sufficient, it's clear, it's supreme, this is what we're, sh- we're sharing. This is our view, our church's view of the Bible, that it is scripture alone to, to know to know Jesus, to know God. This is God's revelation to us. Listen, here's the point, actually. It's 2 Timothy 2.15. It says this, the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice that. The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. The whole point of scriptures is God saying, I want you to be saved. I want you to have eternal life. God's not trying to confuse us. God's not trying to make it difficult. God wants every man to be saved, 2 Peter 3.9 that none should perish and all should come to repentance, that God wants you right now to know him and believe in him, that God wants you right now to be saved and trust in Jesus, that he's given us everything we need to know, to receive, to hear his word, and to believe on him and to be born again. And he goes, that, that's, you have it. You have what you need for salvation. So here's what the scripture is for us. Now, when I, I want to like break this down. It says it's living. The word of God is living. It is living. So here's the idea. God is alive. The word is alive. God speaks, the Bible speaks. The Bible speaks, God speaks. That this book is a living book. Really think about this. This book is different than Shakespeare's writings. All right. This is not like some person who died hundreds of years ago and we studied in you know, English class. And we're like, oh, look at this. This is actually a living book by a living author. Uh, this is what Jesus said in John 6, 63. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit in their life. The words I speak to you are spirit in their life. I want us to approach the Bible in this way again, that we really believe that the words are spirit in our life, that as you believe, honestly, there's just something about, you know, I I love what Charles Spurgeon talked about the Bible. He goes, there's no need to defend the Bible. He's like, the Bible's like a lion. You don't defend a lion. You just let it out of its cage. You just let the lion out of its cage. It can defend itself. There's something about people just opening up the Bible and just reading it. Like, you read it. This is a living book. It is living. Let me say this. Um, I've talked to people who said, you know, Josiah, I've read the Bible 50 years ago through and through. I've read it multiple times. I still don't believe in it. It's a great book. It's a great book on morality. It's a great book on the law. It's a great book on these things. But you know what? This is not God's word. You're, you're taking this too far. Um, you know, Jesus seemed like to be a good guy, and they kind of try to downplay it. And he- here's all I'd ask. Maybe you've read this book before. Maybe you've dismissed this book. Maybe you had some college professor that diminished this book, and he tried to paint it a certain way. I would just encourage you to not just read it, to not just read it, but to invite the Spirit to say, God, if this is your book, would you speak to me? And here's why I say that. I really believe God will show up. And you're like, how do you know this? Hebrews 11.6 says, listen, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Please hear this. If you read the Bible years ago and you go, it doesn't, it's not for me. Here's what the, the book of Hebrews is saying. If you come to God, you must believe that he is. It's weird to believe, it's weird to read a book and you don't believe this author behind it's real. And you go, well, he didn't speak to me. I got nothing out of it, so I don't need it. He's, the Bible's saying this, which is powerful. Read it. Read it in a way 
as if God is, as God exists, as if God wants to speak, and read it with this mindset that God wants to reward those who diligently seek him, that if you diligently seek him, you will find him. C.S. Lewis, um, I mean, the, the list goes on. People who read this book as a critic and ended up being saved. They read it to dismiss it and diminish it, and then they end up believing in Jesus. The word of God is living. Martin Luther said this great quote, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold on me. It has, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. And if you've ever read the Bible in this way, you go, if you've ever read the Bible, you've probably experienced this where you go, wow, I feel like it just laid a hold of me, just speaking to me in this powerful way. The word of God is living. And the next verse, the next word is this, and powerful. It's living and powerful. It's living and powerful. Um, if you want to circle the word powerful and write this word down, it's this word energes, energes. Um, it's the, when you see it, it looks like the word energy. That's where we get the word energy. It is literally energetic, which is so good. You're like, Josiah, why are you so energetic? I'm like, I don't know what the Bible is. Um, it's energetic. The word of God has energy. It's active. It's powerful. That word for energy, it's powerful. This is a powerful book. Think about this. Think about all those who've read this and their lives have been changed. Think about the rapists and murderers. Think about people who've been so far from God, part of human trafficking, sex trafficking, and that they picked up this book and been saved. People who've written great psalms and hymns and stories and books who said, I once was lost, but now I see. There were people who did disgusting, terrible things. They picked up this book, read it, believed it, and their life was dramatically changed. Even if you say this, that's subjective, well, look at that. Consider that. Consider the fact that people who were far from God and their lifestyle was far from God's way of living. They read this book and their life was dramatically changed. Consider even the fact of people who love this book, believe this book, the, orphanage, the orphanages they started, the hospitals they started. Consider what the people who read this book and taken it serious have done. When people try to throw the crusades at you or throw different time periods of the church, you go, yeah, they obviously didn't read the Bible. They obviously didn't believe the Bible. They obviously weren't a disciple of Jesus because they weren't known for love. So yes, maybe they used this book in some power trip type of way that was terrible, but they obviously didn't believe it or read it or study it because they did. They'd be the one building those hospitals, building those orphanages. They'd be the ones whose lives would be dramatically changed, selling their goods and possession to help people who are being human trafficked. This is what we've seen throughout church history. The Bible is powerful. It just does change. This is what it does. It, ch it changes lives. This is what it, God made it for, that people might read it and be saved. Listen, again, I, I really can't stress this enough. Church, I want to believe in, for us more than ever this Easter season that as this word is proclaimed and preached, people will hear on Jesus and their hearts will be regenerated or born again or made new because there's something about the word of God going out that wakens hearts up. There's something about the word of God going out that brings dead men to life. And I don't fully understand what that is, but there's something about when the word of God is preached and heralded and communicated that it brings forth new life, amen? This is how it's defined. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now we're gonna look at this. The word discer is discerned. The word discerns. We're gonna keep reading. It's verse 12. We'll, say it's, we'll read this part where it says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God discerns, it discerns. This word, if you would circle it, uh, is a discerner of thoughts. That word in verse 12, discerner, circle that. That's the word critic. The word is a critic, it criticizes. I find that ironic. Because people try to read the Bible and criticize it when the Bible say, no, it criticizes you. Like it critiques us. It discerns us. We try to discern it, but it's discerning us. Uh, it's described like a sword. 
in, in reality, um, I think the Bible is one of the best diagnostic tools in the world, meaning just like you might get an MRI or an X-ray to see what's going on in the inside of you, the Bible diagnoses you and me really well. It discerns my thoughts, my motives. It pierces through my soul, my spirit, and kind of just, even through boi- you know, joints and marrow, it kind of just gets to the point. The Bible has that unique authority where it discerns. You know, people like to read the Bible, but in reality, what happens is the Bible reads us. We try to read the Bible, and the Bible's like, why is it speaking so well to me? You know, it's funny how many times I've talked to people, they're like, Josiah, what you spoke on, I need to hear that. Like, were you following me around this week? Like, what was that? And it's like, obviously not. Uh, The Word of God, that'd be really creepy. The Word of God actually is so discerning. The Word of God, the way it reads me, the way I am going through something as a husband or dad, and then I read a passage, and I go, okay, God, I get it. I get what you're saying. It is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. The word is, is very powerful this way, and it's beautiful. Let me just say this. It's not a sword to cut you down and kill you. That's not the point. It, it's more like a surgical tool where it's doing an incision, and it's painful, and it hurts, but it's ultimately to bring healing. You know, I had ankle surgery, I think, over a year ago. Maybe remember on like Easter, I was like limping last year. I had ankle surgery. I had a couple of bones that were chipped off my ankle. They're just floating around, and they get stuck in the wrong spot. And it just hurt so bad, and so... Uh, finally I got ankle surgery. They removed, I think, three or four something pieces of bone, like the size of teeth. Now for six months, um, I, I was walking around with like a kind of a limp. I probably started walking too soon to remember. But for like months, I couldn't really run or do much. But after that was over and after the swelling went down, it, it's crazy how great my ankle felt in this way where I didn't have that grinding bone on joint issue. The doctor took a tool to cut me. It hurt me, but it led to life. It led to healing. Here is the point. God is not trying to cut you to hurt you. It will hurt. It is a sword. It will hurt. But it's to heal you. You know, it, even the word sword is used for like actually a small blade. Like a, people would carry, soldiers would carry long swords and they'd carry smaller swords. That was more for like small, like tactical warfare. Uh, this is that, that's that word that's being used. It's more of like a surgical sword. It was more of a way that would pinpoint things. And here's why I'm, I'm bringing this up. When I say the word discerns, it discerns in a few ways. If you would write these things down, um, it convicts, it converts, and it contends. Convicts, converts, contends. Let's just talk through the first one. It convicts. When you read this, there's something convicting about it. Let me be really qu- clear. The Bible's not here to condemn you. Jesus said, I did not come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Jesus doesn't come to condemn us because we already are condemned. He can't condemn what's already condemned. Truth is, we are already condemned. He goes, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. I actually came to save it from condemnation. But the point is, there's a difference between condemnation or condemning and convicting. Con- condemning just to dismiss, you know, you're condemning someone to judgment, to dismiss them to not work. Convicting is um, that idea too, of I'm gonna work with you. I'm gonna come alongside you. I'm gonna reveal the flaws and the issues, but it's to get you out of that, not to keep you there. The word of God is convicting. And sometimes people respond to the conviction, sometimes they don't. You remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen? Stephen, he's, he shares the Old Testament in this crazy, beautiful history. Read it. Like, I think it's the longest chapter in the book of Acts. He preaches this beautiful sermon. And at the end, here's what it says about uh, Stephen. It says, when they heard these things, the people, the Jews, were cut to the heart. And they gnashed uh, their teeth at him. They were cut to the heart. So they were convicted, but the conviction didn't lead to conversion. The point is conviction needs to lead to conversion. It needs to lead to change. It needs to lead to new life. But the word of God does convict. 
they literally were so frustrated by what he was saying. If you read his great sermon, they get it. Like, oh my gosh, we are just like our parents. We constantly reject God. We constantly reject God's prophets, God's word, God's people. We, now we're rejecting Jesus. And Peter was doing a great, or Steve was doing a great job of preaching this sermon. And it, it cut them, but it didn't lead to change. I'll say this, the word of God is, does convict. And the point is not just to feel convicted. If you feel convicted, but it doesn't lead to change, that's not the point. It's not to keep you there. It's to lead you to something else. And then here's the second thing. It's to lead to conversion. So the word of God is certain to lead to conversion. Now, I don't love that word conversion. I think it kind of gets a bad connotation. But the idea is it's to lead to new life. It's to lead to change. Peter's sermon in Acts 2, we see another sermon that led to conversion. Listen to this. Uh, In Acts 2, verse 37, Peter preaches the gospel beautifully. And then it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So Peter's sermon, they're cut to the heart. Stephen's sermon, they're cut to the heart. But in Acts 2, they're like, okay, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes, in times of refreshing will come. The, the point is, God's word is to convert us, to change us, to make us into Jesus' Jesus's image, to make us more like, to believe on Jesus, to be born again, and to follow in the ways of Jesus. It's to convert us and to change us. So the word of God discerns. It convicts, it converts, it converts, and thirdly, listen, it contends. The word of God contends. And what do I mean by that? Jesus used the word to contend with Satan, and really powerfully. Actually, a lot of people use the word to contend with spiritual warfare. Remember Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's message on spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, he says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And then he says, Put on the full armor of God. And remember this phrase in Ephesians 6, 17. He says, And take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? Which is what? The word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So he goes, uh, There's this contending battle going on between light and darkness, you know, between principalities and powers. And he goes, you want to know how to contend? Take the sword, which is the word of God. Now, really fun side note, by the way, the word of God here is different. It's not logos, it's rhema. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the rhema of God. Um, The logos is God's like revelation. The rhema is God's um, really his spoken word, his specific word, his right word at the right time, meaning we still need the rhema of God. We have the logos, the word of God. But let me tell you this, church, there are times in life and ministry you need a specific word from God for people. There are times where you speak to people and you're just saying the quoting a verse them, not that it won't help, but they need to have a specific word. We need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. You say, God, what is it you want to say right now in this moment? That is the rhema of God. You're saying, God, what is it you want to do right now? And you have, you have such like a, a conviction with the Lord, a, a sense of peace with the Lord. You go, okay, Lord, and you speak, and someone's like, I need to hear that. I had a conversation with someone yesterday, and it was a really tough conversation. And the person's just crying on the phone. And at the end of the conversation, the person's saying to me, I need to hear exactly what you're saying, even though I didn't want to hear it. And I didn't necessarily quote verse after verse. I spoke scriptural truths, but I didn't necessarily give quotes and references. I speak the rhema of God, the word of God. We need to go to battle with both. The, the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, that's the sword of this, we, this sword. And we also need to go to battle with the specific word. Do you remember when Jesus was in the desert in the wilderness with Satan? Remember the content, they're contending? Satan's like, Jesus, turn, I know you're fasting for 40 days. Turn this bread into some, or turn this stone into some bread. And then what does Jesus say in Matthew 4.4? 4? Jesus says this. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Three times, Satan tempts Jesus. Three times, Jesus says, it is written. I love that. He's like, Jesus, you know you could just bow down to me and I'll give you all of this. Jesus, you know, uh, I could throw you from the temple and everyone will see you get caught by these angels. And he goes, it is written, it is written, it is written. Even Satan tries to quote scripture. Satan tries to quote scripture to Jesus. But Jesus has scripture used the right way in the right context. 
And here's why I'm saying this. We use scripture to contend. When we pray, we pray scripture. When I pray, we try to pray spiritual things. We're inviting, saying, Lord, this is what you say, we believe this. When we're talking to someone and they're going through something, we contend with scripture. We're pointing them back to who God is and what he says about them. Church, please listen to that. We don't share our opinions or advice. We might, that might get blurred sometimes, but my job and our job is to do the best we can to say, let's go back to the word of God. What does it say? And how do we bring application to your life right now in this moment? Listen, the word of God convicts, it converts, it contends. Jesus used it. Paul tells us to use the sword of the spirit, which is the rhema of God, the word of God. We're told to use this in a contending way. Remember when there's a weird book, the book of Jude, I don't know if you ever read it. I call it weird because it's just bizarre. So bizarre when you read the book of Jude. It's just one chapter and there's this phrase where he says, don't you remember what Michael the archangel did when he was battling for Moses' body with Satan? Like what story was that? I missed that story. But he's shining some context and light on that. And he says, when Michael and Satan were battling over Moses' body, Michael, the archangel, said to Satan simply this phrase, the Lord rebuke you. He contended with words. He contends with the word of God, with the Lord. My point is we contend with the word of God. The word discerns. Man, there's nothing like the word that just can penetrate through all the junk and get to the point. When you're with someone and you're kind of going round and round and round in circle and you go, but listen, here's what the word says. Do you submit to it? There's something about the word of God that just pierces through joint and marrow and gets straight to the point, amen? The word discerns. The word's defined here, it discerns. But listen, the last phrase the word demands. The word demands something. The last phrase, look at verse 13 again. We'll just read the whole verse. There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word demands. To whom we must give account. The word demands something. All things are naked and open. All things are exposed. What does this take your mind back to when you hear that phrase? Like, what a weird, like, what is he saying? The word of God's living and all things are naked and exposed. Remember when Adam and Eve first sinned against God? They ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They realized immediately, oh my goodness, we are naked. Uh, what, is, what is naked? I don't know, but we're experiencing this. They go and take fig leaves, sew them together, and they cover up themselves. They try to cover up their sins. They try to cover up their nakedness. And God's in the garden and goes, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Then Adam responds to him and says, God, I hid myself. I hid myself. And of course, God knew where Adam was. I think that question of trying to get Adam to respond, God, where am I? I'm hiding from you, God. You want to know where I am? I'm, I'm hiding but all things were truly naked and open. God could obviously see and know where he was. The, the point is, and the word, God speaks the word to him and over him, and there's something about the word of God that just reveals everything. <clears throat> you know, there's this guy named Francis Schaeffer. He writes this. He goes, what if on judgment day, now just follow with me, what if on judgment day you're not necessarily held to what the word of God says to the Ten Commandments? You're not held to what some other philosophy or what other religion says. What if on judgment day you're held accountable to what you said? So his point was this. He writes about this. He says, so every time you say about someone else, well, they should, you should, he should, she should, you shouldn't. What if every time we said should or ought, you ought to do this, you, you should not. What if every time we said that, there was like a tape recorder that started recording us. Everything we said someone else shouldn't do, it started recording what we were saying. And on judgment day, we stand before God, and it's just us, him quoting back to ourselves what others shouldn't do, and yet we did that. The point is we're all hypocritical. You shouldn't. They shouldn't. Why is he? And yet we do those things. What if on judgment day you're only judged for what you shared? We'd all fall short of our own standards. Not only do we fall short of God's standards, not only do we fall short of God's law, but we fall short of our law. We fall short of our standards. Do we, do we get this? All things are naked and exposed to God, to whom we must give account. The word demands there is going to be a sense where we give an account one day to God. Now, let me say this, because we're not going to get there yet. Verse 14 through 16 is coming. 
verse 14 through 16, which is, to whom must we must give an account? Do you not feel the weight of that? I feel the weight of that. I'm going to give an account to God. That, that's a, you know, it says in Hebrews 12, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It, it, that's, that's, you know, we're going to give an account to God. That's something that should bring a holy fear. It should. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16 is coming, where it says, you have a high priest you can come boldly to the throne room of grace because you have a high priest. That is so beautiful. So we will give an account, but here's the whole point. Jesus said on the cross, what? It is finished. Here's the point. Jesus said, put it on my account. You know, you're gonna be held and I'm gonna be held accountable one day, but Jesus put it on my account. If you've ever been with someone you're out to eat and they're like, yeah, yo, put it on me, put it on my account. There's something like, oh my gosh, I'll get another... (laughs) appetizer. There's something uh, incredibly freeing about this. When someone's like, put it on my account, this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, put it on my account. We will give an account to God one day. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 talks about that. You're either going to be judged for your sins when you stand before God because you did not receive the forgiveness found in Jesus, or you'll be judged not for your sins, but for how you lived your life, for how you followed Jesus once you were forgiven. There is a sense where, you know, just like you're judged when you finish a race, you're a judge. Did you get first, second, third, fourth, fifth? It's not a bad judgment. It's just how did you run the race? Christians, we're still going to be accountable to God one day. How did you run the race? Am I judged for my sins? No. Why? My sins were judged on Jesus. God is just and not going to judge Jesus for my sins and then judge me again because my sins were already judged. But there is a sense of judgment for how we stand before him one day and what did you do with that truth? How did you run the race? Just like a runner is judged in a race or a competitor is judged in a competition, it's how did you compete? Did you get last? you get first? It's not it's even a bad thing, but it's like, how did you compete? You're comp- so now as Christians, we're competing. Get in the game. Get in the race. Get in the competition. Now how, we're judged for how we compete. So there's still that accountability. There's still that holy fear that it should do, but not just this fear of, oh my goodness, I'm going to experience um, all of sin, hell, and death on me. No, Jesus experienced all of that. But there's still, we are going to give an account, and we do have a high priest. We have a high priest who goes to God on our behalf. I really want you to listen to this last verse. I'm going to read it right now. I'm just going to, I just beg you to listen to this, because this phrase, the word demands, the phrase to whom we must give an account, listen to what Jesus said in John 5. Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, listen, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Again, hear that. If you hear God's word and believe in him who sent me, you have everlasting life. And then the phrase, look at this phrase, and it should be on the screen. You shall not come into judgment. Jesus said this. If you believe in him and his words and you believe in the father who sent him, you will pass from death to life. You'll have everlasting life. And he says, uh, you shall not come into judgment. How beautiful is that? Because Jesus would be judged for us. This is Holy Week. This is the week where we celebrate the fact that Jesus not only took my place on the cross and died, and it seemed hopeless in a sense. The disciples were discouraged, but then Sunday came. Resurrection came, new life came. Um, Church, I want to really encourage you this week. I know it's crazy. There's a lot going on. Put yourself into the story of Jesus. Read it this week. Slow down this week. Thank him this week. Look back in our podcast um, that we're sharing on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We're in the book of Psalms, and we're going to go through Psalm 22 all week just to look at, really, it's the Psalm of the cross. And prepare your hearts for this. Prepare your heart for the fact that Jesus said, if you believe in me, if you believe in me, you shall not come into judgment. That's unbelievable. We do not come into judgment. 
if you believe in Jesus. There's still a sense of accountability. There's still a sense of 2 Corinthians 5.10. How did we compete? How did we, how did we do? but not judgment for my sin. And thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your death and resurrection. And that's what we're here to celebrate this week, today, every day. Easter is not just a one-day-year thing for us. It's an everyday thing. We celebrate the fact that he's risen every day. So I, I cannot wait for this week and all that God has in store. Church, I want to encourage you guys. The word of God is living and powerful, and it discerns your thoughts and your motives. It discerns my thoughts and motives, and that's a humbling thing. It's incredibly humbling when God goes, I know why you did that, and I know what you're thinking of that. And guess what? There's grace for that. I still need grace. I still need mercy. That's why we come boldly to the throne room of grace because it discerns my thoughts and motives. It's not even about all these bad things we might be doing. Even the good things I do for bad reasons. Even the good things I do for selfish, it discerns that. So I, I still come boldly to God's throne of grace. God, I need your grace. You saw that motive. You saw that intent. You saw that thought. I, I need God's grace, like not daily, like momentarily daily, like every moment of the day. And this is what we're going to share in a couple of weeks, even after Easter and at Easter. 